Today I want to continue the conversation that our beloved pastor has been leading us through 2020. As I was told to minister today, I, I kind of had a message in mind, but as the week kept coming, God started dropping a couple of scriptures and changing the message I had in mind. For the past couple of weeks, pastor has been leading us through a word that was given to us and it was called realignment. The realignment of the heart. We heard the realignment of our eyes. And last week we heard the realignment of our mind. I want you to understand, as pastor has mentioned, the pastoral staff have been coming together. And for lack of a better term, we are becoming more focused and purposeful, intentional for what we're going to do here at WOW Center this year into the future. Now, it is not my role to speak about what is coming out of those meetings. That's, that's for the executive leadership. However, I do want to lay a quick foundation on how this relates to all of us as a whole here at WOW. The title is simply Good and Pleasant. As we read Psalms 133, which we have this banner that, that says it, I want you to understand that Psalms 133 is known as the unity psalm. It paints a picture of the beauty when God's people are unified in what God has planned for them. See, being a coach and a player in athletics, I honestly see the value of working together from a unified position with one purpose in mind. I remember a time when I was coaching, and I coached soccer, football. And uh, <laughs> I remember a time I was coaching, and we were in the middle of a game, and, and my team was winning, but I wasn't really satisfied with their performance. We, we had the game somewhat under control, and those who've been an athletes know, especially when you're rooting for your favorite team, some of you guys tonight, where you feel like, you know, your team is winning, but there's got to be that one more, mm, that one more hit, that, that one more score to make you feel at ease, you, you know what I mean, yeah? And I, I, my, my team was, was, they had the game in control, but... I wasn't satisfied. I felt like we needed a spark. We needed some energy. We needed somebody to come off the bench and, and make a difference. And I remember, I'm like, who can I put in? Who can I put in? And I looked over to my bench. And when I looked over to the bench, I saw the boys talking among themselves. And they weren't talking about the game. Teenage boys, who knows, girls, grades, I don't know. But I, what I know is they were not talking about the game, and I thought to myself, I cannot put somebody who's not engaged in the game inside. I couldn't. It wasn't right for the guys who were playing hard on the field. I couldn't find someone to put a spark, some energy to create that momentum so to completely win the game when they're not engaged. And I wonder how many of us at Well Center who are talking among themselves. Who, who are talking about what God has called them, 
but they're not engaged with what God is actually doing in this body. We, we're talking about, man, how come coach doesn't play me much? I'm just as talented as those on the field. Man, I want to teach this church. I'm more anointed than who's teaching. But they weren't engaged with the rhythm of the game. I couldn't put them in. Couldn't put them in. When a team is engaged with one purpose, when it's united, it changes the attitude, the attitude and mindset of the players. And when a team becomes one, let me tell you, it's such a beautiful sight. I've seen it in church and in coaching. And although this next statement does not really apply for today's Super Bowl game, I know some of that that's on our minds, you know, I, I truly believe both teams deserve to be there. But there is nothing like an underdog story of a team who has faced adversity, put and set aside their differences to focus on that one big goal and through grit and determination shocks the world and wins the big game. That, that moves me. And if you've been at WOW Center long enough for any length of time, you know that we have faced our fair share of adversity and warfare. What I'm asking is that we set aside our differences and prepare our hearts for what this leadership is going to bring in front of you. But as any great success story, I believe God is moving in our midst and setting us in motion for a great harvest filled with the demonstration of both his power and his love. You see, the enemy is not afraid of the Pentecostal and charismatic churches that has all the spiritual gifts in operation because he could easily masquerade in those. But what he is afraid of is a united church. The psalmist starts off as how good and pleasant. How beautiful when God's people dwells in unity. The Hebrew term for good comes from a word tob or tobe, which has plenty of meanings, such as a good thing. You know, when God created the world, he said, oh, that's good. Better, bountiful, favor, loving, prosperity, sweet, welfare. Our English understanding of good is so lacking. When it says that God is good, it means more than God being nice and giving us good things when we pray. It means so much more than that. Because God being good has more to do with his holiness than it does his niceness. 
Because God being good has no appearance of evil. That's what makes him so deaf, separate and distinct from any other thing that was created. And this is free, but the fact that God is good, that should scare us. Because we are not. We're wicked. We're wretched. But what a loving God we serve. So when God's people are unified, God views it not just as sweet, not just bountiful, not just loving or better, but he views it as holy. And when God sees something as good, he's pleased with it. And the term pleasant brings a sense of agreeability, a sense of a pleasant voyage, you know, like a pleasant ride. So what I notice with people who work, they love working in a place. They love serving in a place when everyone is unified and there's one common goal. It's a pleasant ride. Never, ever underestimate the power of God's people becoming one. The psalmist continues how it is like the oil coming down from the head of Aaron's beard, running down to the collar of his robe. Man, Duck Dynasty beards had nothing what Aaron had. Some sources says that his, his, his beard was so long it went down to his feet. And we know that the oil is symbolic of what? The Holy Spirit, the anointing. So can you imagine this picture of a long beard where the oil is coming down? So it's not just coming down from his face. It's not just, it's coming down, yes, but, but it's touching other parts of the body. And if Christ is the head of the church, the oil cannot flow in a dismembered body. The oil of the Holy Spirit the anointing will flow when the body is unified. I can't wait for that day. I often say what's in the head is in the house. So let's do our part to put the house in order. And if Christ, again, is truly the head of the church, then a unified church will receive the power and love to demonstrate his gospel message. And what is the gospel message? That God came in man form, and we know him as Jesus Christ, who came to save those that were lost. He died on the cross 
as a punishment for yours, for my sins. He was put in the tomb, but three days later, I'm going to get get old here. All right, three days later, Jesus rose from the grave, thus defeating sin, death, and Satan himself. And it gets better. Anyone who accepts this message to be true and receives Jesus Christ to be their Lord and Savior, we will not or she will not receive the punishment of their sins. Because their punishment has already been satisfied in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Thus now, the believer is now reconciled back to the Father. I don't know for sure. But it would not surprise me if the Apostle Paul had Psalms 113 in mind when he was addressing the church in Corinth. Now, we have two letters of Corinthians. But scholars and sources says that he probably wrote two more. But we know we have two to be inspired. However, in his first letter to the church in Corinth, we see... That this church was, for lack of a better term, messed up. They were dysfunctional. But you know what's surprising? Is that first we must understand 1 Corinthians 1 7 states that the church had all of the spiritual gifts in operation. The Bible says they were not lacking one of them. From service gifts to gifts of manifestation, they had it all. Tongues, interpretation of tongues, miracles, healings, words of knowledge, words of wisdom, prophecy. You name it, they had it. But also we know that this church in Corinth was divided They had their favorite teachers and fought for their teachings. As some says, I am for Apollos, that's my pastor. The others, I'm for Paul, that's my pastor. Others were, no, I'm for Cephas, he's the anointed one. Man, doesn't that sound like the church today? We have our favorite little teachers and everything they say becomes law. If I can be honest, I just want to smack some folks sometimes. Like, you need to read your Bible. Like, you you just need to read your Bible. So they had all the spiritual gifts in operation. They, They were divided. And they had so much sin in the church. Man, they had sexual immorality. I'm going to be real. They, they had a guy sleeping with his father's wife. Or something along those lines. Correct me if I'm wrong, Pastor. Idolatry. Of course, they were dividing, right? So they had strife, and it was so bad that they were suing one another. And Paul had to be like, what are you doing? Like, we're believers. We don't sue each other and take it to a public court who don't know God. 
And even though they had all the spiritual gifts in operation, they were getting sick. Why? Because they were taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. It's not that God does not have the power to heal, but he just commanded something. You take my supper as un, in an unworthy manner. The Lord's communion, look, I'm going to be honest with you, and because I've done it. If my heart's not in it, I'm not taking it. That is holy. Because Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. That is holy. Can I say it again? That is holy. See, it doesn't say we are not worthy to take it. It just says don't take it in an unworthy manner. This is free again. <laughs> it's not in my notes, but we, we've been told, I'm not saying we've been told a lie. We just didn't know. We've been, we've been saying that to take the Lord's name in vain, the part of the Ten Commandments is to use his name in a very blasphemous way, like a curse word and stuff. And unfortunately, that's how people know the name Jesus Christ, as a curse word. But that is not necessarily what it means to take his name, Lord, the Lord's name in vain. When he said that to the Israelites, you know what he really meant? He really meant this. If you claim to be mine, you need to live like it. That's like me saying, going up to you and correct you and tell you to do something when I don't even have the pastor's authority to do it. But I would say, pastor told me to tell you, I'm taking his name in vain. I'm taking his authority in vain. So to take the Lord's name in vain is to claim to be a disciple but don't live like it in front of the world. No wonder we're sick when we're taking communion. That's free. <laughs> and despite all of this, God allowed the spiritual gifts, all of them, to be in operation. Because the gifts are irrevocable. Paul makes an interesting statement to this church concerning them. It is so counter culture of what our spirit-filled churches think. Despite all of the spiritual gifts and operations, Paul called them spiritually immature. Let me say that again. He called them babies. And yet they have people prophesying. They had people healing. They had healing people. They had people working miracles. And he said, you guys are infants. And somewhere along the line, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think I am, somewhere along the lines, we exalted gifts as a measure of maturity. And believe me, when I was younger, that's what I prayed for all the time. Then when I got older, I realized I was lacking something. This tells us something very powerful. Spiritual growth is not to be measured on one spiritual gift. As a matter of fact, spiritual growth is to be measured not by the gifts of the Spirit, but by the fruit of the Spirit 
found in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Paul does not, he takes time, he, he does take time in expounding the spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14. Some of us, we can quote those because, man, we love those, right? He names all of the spiritual gifts in there. You know, we always compare and ask, what's your anointing? What's your spiritual gift, you know? And, and we, we see that. And, and verse 14 is a very, 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 very holy. We, we need to, you know, chapter 14 talks about the order and worship and, you know, tongues and prophecy. And, and uh, amongst all the spiritual gifts, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but Paul's like, I, I just wish people spoke in tongues or prayed in tongues and, and prophesied. How, however, I think we missed the point at spirit-filled uh, churches. Because if I can, chapter 12 and chapter 14 were never, ever meant to be the meat of his message to the church. He had to expound on the spiritual gifts, but it was never meant to be the it. If I could use this analogy of that of a sandwich, we love to eat. Spiritual tw uh, chapter 12 and chapter 14, the, the spiritual gifts chapters, they were the buns. They're the bread. And as tasty bread can be, it is never the vital part of the sandwich. Because what's in the middle of the two buns is what makes the sandwich worthy of a good meal. And in this, the spiritual gifts are just the bun of the church life. It's tasty, it's sweet, and it can be filling at times, but it does not provide the meat it does not provide the nutrients. The nutrients is found in chapter 13. The meat of the sandwich is found in chapter 13. And let's read chapter 13, for it says this. If I speak in tongues of men and of angels, but not have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all the mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but not have love, whew, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but not have love, I gain nothing. For love is patient. You can help me out, church. Love is kind. It does not envy, does not boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the what? Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, 
Now, excuse me, I should know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now, faith, hope, and love abide. But these three, but the greatest of these is love. The meat, the nutrient of the church life is love. So as we move forward in 2020, as God is realigning this body, I'm going to tell you, it's, it's causing me to think how I do ministry. As we continue to work for God, and as God plucks some things out of us, let us remember that in everything we do needs to be motivated by love. That means being a team player where you find yourself. At school, at your workplace, at your church. I don't think you heard that. At your church. The athletic team that you're on. Whatever you do, remember we are nothing without love. How does this look like? Well, let's look to our Messiah, our Savior, Jesus Christ. He is our example. Listen to what Paul wrote about Jesus in a prison to the church in Philippians. Philippians 2, man, this blows my mind. It says this. So if there's any... encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, wow, unity, having the same love, there we go again, being in full accord, wow, in a one mind, four times in one verse, I believe, four different phrases for unity. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Wow, God. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This is where it gets good. Who? Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, hallelujah, and bestowed a name on him that Above every name. So that at the name of what? Jesus. Every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and under earth. And every tongue. What? That Jesus Christ is who? To the glory of God the Father. The scripture tells us. To have the same mindset of Jesus Christ. 
And we see in the scripture, what is that mindset? You know what that mindset was that we see in that scripture? Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. Oh, man. But in humility, count others more significant than yourself. Not only looking to our our interests, but to the interests of others. This blows my mind because Jesus Christ is God. I want you to think, look at this picture. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, God. He, our Savior, did not look at the Father and say, I'm just as God as you are. We are one. Why do I got to die? Yet he humbled himself to the Father's plan. His plan of redemption. He didn't count the equality as something to be grabbed, as something to lord over. He humbled himself by becoming a man and was obedient to the point of death on the cross. Jesus showed his interest in others when he said he was dropping sweats of blood. And he said, but not my will, but yours be done. You see, the Godhead is united in their work especially in their work of redemption, in their work of salvation. This is good, a little theology for you. This is awesome. (laughs) The Father has preordained and orchestrates events to bring someone to the saving knowledge of Christ. I guess that's his job. The Son fulfilled his job by becoming a man, and again, I can't get past this, died for our sins and rose from the dead so that you can know the Father to bring him back. And we see the Holy Spirit. He works as he convicts the world of sin and convicts the world of righteousness and convicts the world of judgment. And he is the one who regenerates us and sanctifies us and he seals the believer of their salvation. Now all that you have to do is believe what Jesus did. Once you believe, become his disciple. The Godhead works together because they are one. How much more does God expect of his church but to work together as one? And this can only be done through the example of our Savior. Through humility and through love. God has been humbling me during this process when the pastors, when we're getting together. Because there's a bigger picture in mind. There's a bigger picture in mind for this body than what we see. 
Jesus said a powerful statement in John 13, verses 34 through 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Notice what Jesus said and notice what he did not say. Jesus was speaking to who? His disciples. So those in the family. He doesn't say people will know us by our works, by our preaching, nor by our spiritual gifts, but by our what? Also notice, he didn't say that they will know us to be his disciples by our love, but for our love for one another. <laughs> Don't cut that off. You see, people want a place they can belong to. And sometimes people want to find a place to belong before they actually believe. And we can show unbelievers that our love for each other is so real and genuine. When that happens, our witness will be more effective. It's not that our love shows his light. It's our love for each other. Because I believe when seekers and atheists and unbelievers, when they walk in, a church that is united, a church that genuinely loves each other, that changes them. Because based on what Jesus said, They'll look at us and say, yep, those are God people. Those are God followers. Those are Christ followers. Isn't this good? God is so good. The truth is, our enemy, he can duplicate and perform preachings and teachings. Scripture makes it clear that he can perform and duplicate miracles and signs. But what he cannot duplicate and what he cannot perform is love. Why? Because God is love. The enemy's attempt to love falls short because it's just lust. It's deception. It's not love. Love is a powerful thing. It's really a powerful person. <laughs> and his love can unify us. There's a quote that I saw on Facebook, and I had to share it. It was a quote from a guy named John Allen Turner. He said something that was 
eye-opening and can break our heart. And it says this. It's hard to convince people that a God they can't see loves them when a church they can't see doesn't seem to like them. Can it be that the church in America, and let's check ourselves, that our love for each other has grown so stale that outsiders think we don't even like them or even care to know them. Church, let's put our agendas aside. Let's come together. Please prepare your hearts for what God has. And be willing to accept your role. Because God is shaking us and realigning us for his preordained plan. And even if we don't like it, and even if it means for some of us to take a back seat, let's come together. Maybe some of us are thinking of people that you need to talk to and just hash things out with. Just so you can get on the same page. Maybe you need to call someone and ask for forgiveness within this body. Maybe we need to examine our motive, whether it is here or at work or in your team. But let me leave you with this verse, Ephesians 4, 2 and 3. With all humility and gentleness with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Remember how good and pleasant for God's people to dwell in unity. I'm going to say it again. How good and pleasant for God's people to dwell in unity. And here's the altar call. First and foremost and most importantly, if you have never had an opportunity to meet Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, today is your day for salvation. As the scripture says, if he didn't rise from the dead, then our faith is in vain. But guess what? They have not disproved his resurrection. That should excite somebody. On the contrary, a famous lawyer, atheist, try to disprove it and end up getting saved. <laughs> I don't know. Well, he's famous now. I don't know if he was back then, but So if you want to invite Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that is the best and most important decision you will ever have to make. You have a loving team of prayer warriors here that want to pray that with you. Secondly, you want prayer for something that was in relation to this message. Maybe you want to love better or be a better witness. 
you have a loving group of people that just want to pray with you. There is no judgment. And because we have a loving group of people, we'll pray for anything you want to pray for. But for some of us, maybe your altar call is to search someone out in this building, apologize, and get things right. How good and pleasant for God's people to dwell in unity. May we love one another. May we love one another.